Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast version of our show for Friday, December 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here on the show. What a wild and crazy week. Lots and lots going on. We can't wait to bring it all to you. And we will start this week with our line opinion panel, which this week is made up of former senators Diane Snyder and Eric Griego. Also joining them, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group uh, Public Relations Company. And we are diving right into the Roundhouse, where lawmakers gathered this week for a special session, primarily to deal with redistricting, this once-a-decade process of redrawing political boundaries. And you have no doubt heard us talk a lot about this because we have a new process for this starting this year. We had a citizen redistricting committee that held uh, dozens of meetings with the public all over the state to get feedback on how to redraw these political boundaries for U.S. congressional races, for state House and Senate races, and other political competitions as well. These maps will be in place for the next 10 years. And of course, these maps are often a political tool. We see gerrymandering. You've heard terms like packing and cracking, where the uh, parties that are in power redraw these boundaries in ways that uh, are designed nothing to do nothing but help them politically and in the election. So this new citizen, re- citizen redistricting committee and their process for coming up with maps was supposed to help uh, remove some of that from the process. And uh, they came up with suggested maps to present to the lawmakers. And now lawmakers are going through those or tweaking those maps to vote on them. It's been a very slow and deliberate process so far, and one thing we have definitely seen is that lawmakers are not afraid to uh, go their own way away from the Citizen Redistricting Commission. Uh, They may, in some cases, be taking inspiration from some of those maps, I guess, but uh, we seem to be in the midst of a political battle either way. Whether or not that means the courts will have to decide that in the end, we shall see. The feed bill for the special session covered 12 days, so this work may continue through next week. We shall see. Meetings are going on as we speak right now in Santa Fe. Uh, Lawmakers also charged with deciding what to do with some of the federal COVID relief funds since the state Supreme Court said the governor could not do that unilaterally and needed their input. So a lot of work to be done there. We're going to have much more on this in the coming days as well. But here we get some reaction from the line about the work done so far. Here now, host Gene Grant. We have some good perspective this week on what's happening in Santa Fe. We're joined by two former state senators, Republican Diane Snyder and Democrat Eric Riego. Thank you both for being here. We're also welcoming back friend of the show, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group Public Relations Company. We're always glad when Tom's here. All right, guys, the action's coming slow and deliberate in the roundhouse. Lawmakers are planning for up to 12 days of work to hash out these redistricting decisions. And Tom, so far, what do you make of the approach? Well, uh, unfortunately, it's kind of what we thought might happen. Uh, By disclosure, uh, on the topic of redistricting, I do have uh, some clients in that particular space. My views are my own. Mm -hmm. Uh, With respect to, you know, what's happening is, is that I think what we saw was that the Citizen Redistricting Committee 
made their uh, suggestions after two statewide hearings. Uh, they developed a set of maps for each of the different categories and submitted those maps. And I think the legislature just said, you know what? I think we could probably improve upon these, at which point it just really kind of took out the whole uh, you know, people over place or, or rather uh, over, you know, politics is really kind of taking over. Mm -hmm. And that's really unfortunate because I think that, uh, you know, there definitely isn't an, uh, any uh, substantive public input on these different maps or even on this process. And uh, I'm concerned that unfortunately partisan gerrymandering is going to become the rule of the day. Mm -hmm. Let's go to our politicians on that one. Nice setup there, Mr. Tom. Uh, Eric Griego, former Senator Eric Griego, uh, you know, as Tom mentions, lawmakers are showing no fear and just turning away from what the CRC came up with. And we don't know exactly, you know, they're arguing today as we as we record this. So uh, we don't have the latest, latest, latest. But your sense of it so far, what you've seen, are the maps that the, the, Justice Chavez and others handed in just toast at this point? Well, to be fair, I don't think they're starting from scratch. I think I think the the recommended maps in most cases, as far as I've seen, have been the the, the basis, the point of departure. And mm -hmm. it's absolutely true that they've been tweaked um, some more than others. Um, so um, I wasn't crazy about all the maps, uh, but but um, certainly there. Uh, all the maps that came out of the CRC were the yeah, came okay. the CRC. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I supported this idea of having an independent body do it. I think they I think they did a you know a, a reasonable job of trying to take a lot of public input. Um, I think the maps that came up with were for the most part pretty um, pretty fair. And I've again, we don't know because they're literally, as you said, voting on them as we speak. So we don't know. And I was just talking to a former colleague before the show and and like they don't know there was amendments being offered and so on so i went through this 10 years ago when i was mm -hmm. in the senate i think senator schneider might have been there too but um we you know there's changes up until the end and just to be clear for the viewers like these are no matter how these things come out they're going to be challenged legally that's what happened last time mm -hmm. um the courts will ultimately decide if they were fair if they uh there was anything untoward but um I think I know we're going to talk about this, but the biggest change I think that's really ca caused a bit of a dust up is this idea that we should have uh, uh, really redraw this to congressional maps. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's um, that's where everybody's focused. But there's a lot of other stuff going on, especially in the state Senate where, uh, where Diane and I served. I think there's going to be some pretty big changes to the districts in the Senate side as well. Mm -hmm. uh, in the state Senate, the House is less kind of less going on there but um but i think the big the big change that perhaps folks are not happy with is that there will be three uh democratic leaning districts as opposed to two democratic and one republican and you know no matter where you come out on that i think that's uh that's something that's happening all across the country given the stakes um i think if if the republicans were in control you can be assured that they would be trying to uh, redrawing these districts the same way so ultimately i think a court's going to decide the court's going to decide whether or not uh, to accept what, the, what comes out of the legislature mm -hmm. when they're done this week or next week. Mm -hmm. Senator Snyder, I want to get to this point of Democrat versus Republican, but just just bear with me a quick sec, because one of the big issues already has been around one of the CRC maps, which was originally submitted by the Center for Civic Policy. The map would shift our national congressional maps drastically, as Eric mentioned, with a goal of reportedly, and we all get this, enhancing Hispanic and Latino voices and others. That may sound good on the surface, but those decisions are all trade-offs, aren't they? Every decision in redistricting is a trade-off. Mm -hmm. Just one quick uh, up to date. I was there for the 2001 
redistricting. Right. And you have to understand we convened on Monday and on Tuesday morning, 9-11 happened. Oh. So we had a totally different uh, atmosphere in the Senate mm-hmm. uh, or well in the legislature to go through redistricting. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean we didn't get over it and got a little bit nasty along the way. Uh, the biggest difference I, I think right now is that this is the first time in what, 30 years or so that we've had in the, yes, the last three redistrict, two redistrictings where the the executive and both chambers are controlled by one party. Mm-hmm. Always before we either had, we had a governor that uh, vetoed it. And then of course the t- two plans went to, to um, the courts. Mm-hmm. I think we will end up in court. I'm not sure exactly the judicial reason for us going but i do think that's the only way that the public will accept it i think that um i can't help but think and and look at this i too supported the idea of a of an independence party but i don't think it was an independent study group of people but that's my personal opinion Mm -hmm. could others hold that i think that um it, it the even senator cervantes bill, which in the Senate has been introduced, and he and a representative, uh, anyway, from a representative have introduced, goes along the lines of dividing up Albuquerque into three districts. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I don't see the areas of commonality. I can't see that that Hobbs has anything in, in common with Santa Fe or Albuquerque with Roswell, mm-hmm. or or any of those, or say uh, Las Cruces with Farmington. Mm-hmm. They're just not, it, and I believe in having equitable, and I think that there, in several of the plans, there were efforts made with particularly Native Americans to make sure that they're represented sure. and in the House and in the Senate as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the area where we've been most negligent over the years let me let me so, swing let me swing tom in here sure. senator just a quick yeah, sec sure. I, I want to touch on this idea you just mentioned about splitting albuquerque up i mean uh, tom the idea that you know roswell and carrizozo would be included with a section of albuquerque or that a section of albuquerque that would be deemed more you know rural somehow it sh- should be mashed in with another district is there a downside to the urban center if this in fact happens Oh, most definitely, because, you know, what, you know, the reason or one, I'm, you would have to assume that one of the reasons why that particular map uh, is being proposed is because they know that Albuquerque will be able to sway, mm-hmm. um, you know, the election one way or another for the Eastern District. And, uh, you know, there, you know, it's the, the one that we're discussing right now uh, does not pass muster with respect to competitiveness uh, or partisanship. Uh, you know, and so what that means is, is that basically we would have three districts uh, that are truly uh, only leaning to one side, at least according to the partisan, uh, the, the Princeton gerrymandering project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think that it's, you know, that's the only reason why somebody would want to split up Albuquerque three ways. My guess is, is that, uh, you know, uh, Senator or uh, Representative Stansberry would probably not be in favor of having her district cut up. Uh, to benefit you know, the third congressional or the second congressional. Right. So, you know, you, there's a whole lot of trading going on, but it could be really simple if we just went back to concept A that was presented by Justice Chavez and the CRC. 
Uh, Eric, yeah, please do pick up on that, and I got a follow up for you. But again, we got a, about a minute twenty here. Yeah, just quickly on that. I mean, I, you know, there's always this this in the legislature and in New Mexico, always this discussion of the rural urban divide. And right. I think if if this is really about unity, I mean, I prob I will personally be affected because I'll be pushed out of this urban district into a southern district uh, under this particular map. But I have to say, you know, we're always in the legislature, and you've seen this, there's always this split. Everybody loves beating up on Albuquerque and the rural communities. I think all three members should have some rural communities, some small communities, but they also should have a piece of Albuquerque. And whether they're Republicans or Democrats, look, I, Heather Wilson was my congressperson for many, many years, mm -hmm. as was Steve Schiff. So, um, you know, it, it shouldn't always be that Albuquerque, the greater Albuquerque area is is its own island as the biggest you know, city in the state. I think it's actually a very reasonable principle to say, let's let's make everybody have a stake in rural New Mexico and in the most urban area. Of, Eric, it may be of, it may be it may be reasonable, but is it practical? I mean, is it really I mean, we're a huge state. We're a massively huge state. Is it, is it really practical to have someone many, many miles away from the center of Albuquerque and they can connect somehow. I just, I can't look, see it. look at the current, look at the current districts. You yeah. have massive districts that go from the corner, the four corners area to, to basically Southern area. So literally uh, two, two to 300 mile district, mm -hmm. but they happen to be two of the districts and only one is very compact. So essentially we've, we've divided the fifth largest state by landmass into two massive, very spread out districts and packed Albuquerque into one. So again, even by that principle, Gene, you would think we'd want to like, let's let's find a way, whether it's this map or another way, to, right. to, to have everybody have a stake in rural and urban New Mexico, Good right? Points there. I mean, that's- yep. Good points there. Hey, we'll, help. we'll be keeping a close eye on that special session, so stick with us on social media for updates uh, and of course, more analysis next week, right here on New Mexico In Focus. Also this week, a major development in another story we've been following very, very closely here on New Mexico in Focus. That is the pro proposed merger between PM, Public Service Company of New Mexico, and a subsidiary uh, known as Avangrid, subsidiary of a Spanish company, Iberdrola. We had an interview last week with some of the executives from PM and Avangrid about why they were pursuing this merger and uh, the Public Rate Regulation Commission, which will decide whether or not this merger should happen, met this week. We expected them to decide whether or not to hear oral arguments as requested by PM and Avangrid to make their case in person before the commissioners. Uh, instead, the PRC jumped right to a vote on the merger, and it was unanimous against, 5-0 to o against this merger. So that doesn't necessarily mean that the merger is dead, it, the uh, companies can appeal or they can go back to the drawing board and come up with a new plan to present to the PRC. And this is all very interesting because it comes at a time when things are about to change for the PRC. You may remember it's been a long-standing issue with PRC uh, being a political body that folks had some issues with. A few years ago, we upped the requirements to be a PRC commissioner uh, so that they had more professional experience in this area. And 
those positions still elected, though. But last year, you may recall when you were at the ballot box that you voted on a proposal to change the entire structure of the PRC to make it an appointed body, appointed these commissioners by the sitting governor, and that will start in January 2023. So depending on how long all of this process changes, PNM and Avangrid may have a whole other channel avenue to try to get this done. So definitely not over, but we want to talk to the line opinion panel about the PRC's surprise decision. State Public Regulation Commissioners have struck down the potential merger between PNM and East Coast utility provider Avangrid. Those commissioners were expected to vote on whether or not to hear oral arguments in the merger case, but they went a step further. We'll get to all the reasons why, but broadly, PRC Chairman Steve, Stephen Fishman said two companies have, quote, a demonstrated record of bad behavior, end quote. That includes billing errors in the Northeast years ago. And Senator Griego, was this doomed from the start, given that history? I mean, these quotes from these PRC folks are really, really hard. I don't think it was doomed from the start because I actually thought they had a ton of momentum. They, mm -hmm. uh, it became unfortunately very transactional. I mean, I think the, both uh, Avangrid and Iberdola were sort of just trying to heap round after round of additional concessions to the 23, 24 groups involved. Mm -hmm. And they got 23 of the 24 to stand down or at least support it. But the one group that stayed in there, uh, New Energy Economy, basically, uh, the most knowledgeable, but also relentless in in just making sure that we uh, made uh, the right choice. And I think that I think that the more information that came out about both companies, mm -hmm. the more um, questionable it became. I was frankly shocked it was a five unanimous vote to to reject the merger. That's I thought point. it was going to be a two or a four one because that's the way right. it was coming down. So I actually think as time went on, Gene, it got worse for the companies. And I don't think it was just around service or some of the press around the the, the controversies with the Iberdola in Spain. Mm -hmm. It was also this idea of um, who's really going to benefit, right? And I right. think. If you're a PM, anybody on the call or listening, if you're a PM shareholder, it was great for you because they got a premium for the shareholders. If you happen to be related to anybody or part of the PM management, it was also a boon for them. Mm -hmm. But for ratepayers and for people who really want to develop uh, really community based or whether it's community solar or, or municipalities being able to have more control over their, their energy uh, use and consumption. And, um, it was not great for them because this was really essentially consolidated uh, mm -hmm. on steroids, a big, not just national, but multinational company using this particular deal to, to broaden the model of a, of a really powerful private, privately owned, share, not shareholder owned necessarily right. company. Yep. Um, so anyway, so I think personally, I think it's an opportunity for us to take a different look at what we want to do. If we want a renewable economy, is there another way to get there? And with all the money we're going to be talking about mm -hmm. on this show and in the future, could we invest some of that in building our own local community-based capacity to really transition to this sustainable, uh, you know, post post fossil fuel economy? And I think it's possible because ten percent of the energy in this country is community-based power companies. It's not investor-owned, and it's not it's not it's not the current model that that we're so used to at PNM. You make a great point, 
Senator, a very great point. We're almost arguing in a, in a 1990s or 2000 kind of way, and energy is going in a whole other direction here. Tom, other concerns about Avangrid uh, expressed by the PRC examiner include poor customer service, Eric mentioned, increased rates, uh, $60 million in fines issued by state regulators in New England, particularly Maine. Pretty serious concerns. And, and Cynthia Hall, one of the regulators, she had a quote, there are a lot of risks that are hard to fully quantify, but there are strong red flags flying in our face, end quote. That's tough stuff. Yeah, yeah it is. You know, I, uh, I think Senator Griego brought up, uh, raised a number of uh, solid points as far as, you know, if Avangrid and PM decide to take another bite of the apple, so to speak, mm -hmm. things that they should consider. I think that that's going to be pretty difficult seeing that it was, you know, a unanimous no. I mean, that was really surprising to me. Mm -hmm. I think one of the areas where, you know, where I think there was uh, a misstep was in the messaging. Uh, because, you know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, 65 million uh, in rate credits, 15 million to low income, uh, you know, for low income in energy, 2 million to help improve access to electricity. Well, those are all big numbers. And when you consider that half of the state of New Mexico, that half of the residents or on some, some type receive some kind of federal aid, mm -hmm. you know, that messaging, you know, that you just can't comprehend all that money and what that benefit's going to be. So I think that there was a misstep in messaging of really making that connection with New Mexico consumers, uh, although their target audience was clearly based on all of the full page ads, all the letters right. to the editor. Yep. Uh, it was to rally business to help in influence and uh, get the, uh, 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 the PRC to come alongside and say, yes, this is a good deal. And so I, I think that that was a strategic misstep, was really kind of creating that messaging that brought in all New Mexico residents. Instead, you just had dollar signs that a lot of people in the state just, you know, like going, yeah, that's that's a lot of money. I'm never mm -hmm. gonna see any of it, or really understand how it would be applied. That's a fair point, I have to say. Good, good stuff there, Tom. Senator um, Snyder, Attorney General Hector Baldaris had been a vocal figure supporting the merits of this merger, as you know. That's despite him facing ethical questions about his involvement with certain players in the deal. And as you know, he was clear to those ethics complaints. But how does it sit to, for you, uh, for him to be so out front and center on this issue? In, in many ways, I think he's doing his job. Mm -hmm. Had there not been the consideration, prior consideration about his friend being their attorney, mm -hmm. is that is what the attorney general is supposed to be doing in some areas of his responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is true. Um, I can't imagine uh, A.G. Balderas being hiding behind his light behind a bush. I think he's smart, he's talented, and felt compelled to make his statement about right. what he thought was best for the citizens of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, I, to me it was just him doing his job and his maybe his personal feeling got in a little bit. But the thing I find most interesting is how, and I don't think it was just the dollars or the increased benefit package or concessions, is all the groups except uh, New Energy Economy who had been opposing this mm -hmm. merger suddenly were supporting it. What happened? What do they know that was not presented? I didn't see any articles about that. Really, I just don't know why, but it says to me there was something besides the money mm -hmm. that that was part of their consideration. Um, I do think, I agree with Tom, everything was geared 
unfortunately, in the advertising and information toward the business community. Mm. Well, that rubbed some people, citizens in our state, the wrong way. That's right. I, I didn't feel like they, PNM and Avant Garde, really spoke to the people. They just, you know, if you're telling me that the Chamber of Commerce and so and so CEO and da 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 da, well, I know all those people, and yeah, they're wonderful. They're going to look for the business deal, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like the message was good and out to the people. The, the other thing I'm going to have to agree with you, Senator, uh, that, you know, you think about the TV campaign with the people holding up the signs. It was pretty weak yeah. tea when it really comes to <laughs> trying to move hearts and minds. Let me go, go I, let me go to Senator Grego here real quick. If I could, uh, we made, I'll come back to you, Senator Snyder. We made changes to the PRC several years ago to try and up the professional expertise of commissioners. As you know, you were part of those discussions right here at this table years ago. Uh, tough question. Did those changes pay off in this situation, given the outcome? Um, I, I always thought it was a red herring. Look, the, the folks, Steve, I, we, I served as Steve Fishman. He was a former CEO. You know, he's a, he's a guy who ran a, who was a CEO of a, a pretty good sized corporation. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Joe Maestas, uh, Commissioner Maestas is a, you know, one of the smartest people in public. You know, he's an engineer, uh, compared a lot to Martin Heinrich, who has a solid sort of technical credentials. So I think they're, pretty knowledgeable. Not all of them are, you know, experts in, in energy policy, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more concerned, Gene, with looking forward, this, this, this decision mm. to really that the industry, including PNM, to sort of make the, the PRC non-elected. We talked about that on a, on a previous show. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it may play out. One scenario is if, if the Supreme Court doesn't approve this, that they may actually wait and they, the amount of time it may take to get through the courts. Mm that this new commission, which will be appointed by whoever the governor, either Governor Lehan Grisham, or if there's a new governor, um, will get to appoint these folks. And I, regardless of who wins, I think they're likely to be much more pro-merger. I think that's one of the things that Avangrid and uh, Iberdo and them are sort of betting on. And that's mm -hmm. one scenario that could, pl could, could play out. I think having commissioners who are elected by the citizens who are absolutely should have some minimal qualifications, but I don't think any whether Democrat or Republican should be appointing um, folks who then will make this is going to be the first huge decision that this non-elected PRC could make. Mm. And it could be, very much go against, I think, public opinion on it. I haven't seen a lot of polling, but my understanding is most folks to the earlier point is like, A, they don't understand it, but to the extent that that you know that this is a big kind of multilateral or multinational that's right. deal. That's right. You know, and PNM's not incredibly popular with the with the general public. That's right. Uh, and when you when you think about it, guys, a four point three billion all cash deal does not come along that often in this world. Thank you for your thoughts on this topic. We're out of time. We've been following uh, this for months now. We're going to continue to do so. We're back in a few minutes to talk about the governor's plan to attract and retain our teachers. That interview I mentioned earlier with PNM and Avangrid officials that we played for you last week, that was only a small portion of about an hour-long interview, and we had intended to bring more of that to you on the show this week, really addressing some of the concerns that the hearing examiner for the PRC had with Avangrid and uh, PNM and this proposal process. When the vote happened, uh, that was not as front and center, but we want to bring that uh, segment to you here again because of the fact that this may come up in other ways down the road, and it also gives you some context 
and some of PM and Avangrid's thoughts about those concerns that ultimately at this point defeated this merger. So podcast is a great opportunity to bring that to you. And uh, correspondent Laura Paskus, again, spent a good amount of time with these folks talking through this very complicated issue. And so we want you to hear that as well. So here now is Laura Paskus with executives from PM and Avangrid. I had a couple other questions about the, um, that were that came up in the PRC hearing examiner's report that I just wanted to ask about. So the document notes that you'll pay PM shareholders $391 million more than the market value of the stocks. And then also, um, I guess I'm just curious, like why, why pay more than you have to? Can you explain that? Uh, very simple. You know, I think you know, first of all, um, there has never been a merger case in the U.S. And, you know, you know, there have been many mergers in the U.S. in the utility sector that has never looked at the premium paid to the shareholders to justify how much customers get or not. Why? A, because, you know, we paid a premium to PM. If you actually look at the premium, not over the last day, you look at the six months, it's negative. So what does it mean? If, the, you know, the, actually the share price goes down, then the, the rate payers should pay to the shareholders. It doesn't work like that, okay? So you need to pay the shareholders to make sure they approve the transaction. And we did. And over one year, one week, we paid a premium. Actually, if you go back and you look at over the share price six months before, it's actually negative premium. But that premium is to the shareholders. If now, you know, the share price goes down, rate payers are not supposed to pay to shareholders. In the same way, if they get a premium, they're not supposed to get the same amount of money. It's totally unrelated. There was another example, you know, you know, you know, some, you know, party, you know, was raising well or some, you did some news, you know, the, the compensation to some management because they're, you know, most of that compensation was already established in their, you know, compensation, in their, you know, compensation packages and it's long-term, you know, uh, a compensation they were entitled. So there is nothing we agreed. We don't even agreed one thing, you know, with Pat and her team, you know, that because of the merger, they're going to be paid. They already had it there. So that's why it's very customary, but you need to pay a premium to shareholders. By the way, you know, this transaction is, you know, as, as we said before, it's about creating value, you know, locally, creating jobs. If you see at the, you know, the multiples, I think Pat did the transaction, which is very well presentable. It's one of the lowest multiples. Look at the other transactions in the U.S. Two or three companies bankrupt. Two other three or three companies issuing capital because they pay too much. That's not what you should do if you want to have a legacy of your company doing well. So that's why we're very comfortable to explain those things in a proper manner. Right. So I also wanted to ask that document. I also noticed that you'll develop non-utility activities in the Southwest, which is why you're paying um, $2.3 billion more than the book value of the PNM assets. What are these non-utility assets that we're talking about? First of all, Laura, if you look at what um, JP Morgan paid for El Paso, for example, it was a lot more um, than it was paid for PNM. And if you look at any company in the United States, you don't sell yourself unless someone is giving you a premium. There's actually a court case going on today where they're, they're claiming that um, Barry Diller underbought, underpaid for Tinder, right? So most people sue over the fact that you get underpaid. And so what Ibadrola saw in the value was, if you look at our renewables, as I mentioned again, we're the, we're the third best in wind and solar potential in the United States. We're a very small state and a small system. So they see the ability, and because we know the local permitting process, the local landowners, all that, 
to build that infrastructure in to build um, solar, wind, and, and transmission to export that stuff to other states, right? We're already in the energy imbalance market, saving our customers money. And so we can continue to take advantage of that infrastructure and take advantage of a, of a good way. We're not sort of taking it from New Mexico and giving it to Arizona or California. We're, ta we're taking advantage of it on behalf of all New Mexicans to keep the proceeds here. So I'm sorry, Pedro, I interrupted, but... Oh, I think the, the, the comment you made, uh, I think, Laura, is very, very interesting because the customers pay their bills in relation, as you said, more or less, let's call it book value. That's the rate base. If you buy a company and you pay a premium, that's a problem for the shareholders. Okay, the rate payers, you know, do not have to pay for that. Okay, so from that point of view, you know, if you were to tell me, well, we're paying $2 billion over book value and the rate payers will have to pay the return on equity in their bills because of our premium? No, that's our problem. The ratepayers continue to pay in relation to the book value of the investment. So it's our issue as a shareholder to do that or not. Okay, and so what would some of the, the like non-utility activities be? Can you just clarify that for Yes, me? the, the, the non-utility operations is anything which is not regulated, okay? So you think about wind as being regulated, but you also have non-regulated wind generation, okay? transmission is not regulated by the public commission you have projects which are transmission we know with tech counterparties that they need transmission those are the non-regulated activities and new mexico for example if you were to build generation and export that to other you know states or to go into mexico that's non-regulated you know so it may be regulated by FERC. it may be you know counterparties private counterparties there are many activities that can be done that are not regulated that same PRC document noted that the merger was not designed to benefit PNM customers. I was hoping you could um, each uh, respond to that because I think that that took some people by surprise there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me clarify the, the hearing examiner, he provided a pathway. So he provided a pathway on, a, on what we would call a modified stipulation. And he added three things to it. He extended the what we would call a rate freeze. We had agreed to not to do a rate case uh, until June 1st of 2022. What he recommended is that we don't file a rate case until December of 2022. We agreed to that and when we filed our, our uh, report on Friday. He also asked for uh, reliability uh, metrics and he asked for reliability penalties. Pat addressed that and we agreed with that. We'll be the only utility in the state that has reliability penalties, but we're confident we can continue to deliver on the reliability that we have. The last thing is he, he required that we have an independent board uh, made up of uh, four uh, non-utility non individuals or, and three that would be management. And we agreed to that. And they're all New Mexico residents. So they're very in tune. So to go back to your original question, what's in it for New Mexico? It's a New Mexico REN board. They'll stay in tune with what's going on. There's rate credits. There's a provision that keeps us out of filing a rate increase. We haven't had a rate increase since 2016 was our last rate case with rates in effect in 2018. So it'll be a five-year period um, uh, from that perspective. And there's a whole lot of commitments that are in there that protect the customer. Local management, absolutely important. And you've heard Pedro talk about that. It's the same people running the utility, ensuring that it's reliable, affordable, um, and, you know, it's environmentally uh, uh, sound and, and, and so forth. So that's what's important. So there was a pathway that was created there, and we, we agreed to every, ele every element on it. If you look at the monetary benefits alone, right, there's $94 million for customers in rate benefits. 
whether it's a rate credit, where it's forgiveness of arrearages because of, of COVID, um, whether it's electricity for customers that, that don't have it. There are economic development benefits that total more than $200 million between the jobs and just straight out dollars for economic development. So there are those kinds of things that are also direct customer um, benefits. So I think we would disagree with the hearing examiner that the merger was not designed to benefit customers. Obviously, the shareholders benefit, but the environment benefits, our employees benefit, and the customers benefit. I think if you just complete that with you know, a couple of examples, the first one is when you compare the benefits that you know, are quantifiable that we have put on the table, you know, rate credits, you know, uh, low-income help, you know, you know, efficiency things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the jobs to be created. All those figures are more than any other transaction approved in New Mexico by the Public Commission. So we are very comfortable that the benefits that they saw in other transactions, we have exceeded them. But second, in terms of, you know, what we want to do is to go beyond. That's why the job component is very important for us. If you see JP Morgan when they got it approved, JP Morgan had never run a U.S. utility in their lives. So I would be concerned, you know, potentially if you buy a utility, you've never run, run a utility. Well, they got it approved. We have exceeded, you know, what they conceded, okay? So from that point of view, the benefits that we have, we are very comfortable and we trust regulators because they usually, you know, they, they approve transactions in a way and we believe that's the way they should approve transactions in the future. And these are two very recent transactions. We have exceeded the benefits that they approved in those transactions. 23 out of 24 interveners support or don't oppose the merger. So I think that's a pretty good endorsement of the fact there's only one party that's against it, that this makes sense for our state. We had the opportunity this week, a special privilege to sit down with author Sam Quinones. He's been on the show before, several years ago, when he uh, released a book called Dreamland that was all about heroin and opiate addiction. He is a former L.A. Times reporter, now turned author. And, of course, uh, opiate addiction is a huge problem to this day here in New Mexico. He does such a great job, again, from that journalistic perspective of really explaining this complicated uh, problem, this illicit drug market and this drug business in the not only the Southwest, but here in New Mexico in a very personal and clear way. And his latest book does the same. It's called The Least of Us. And this time he's looking at meth and fentanyl and a, a new illicit drug as well called P2P. Uh, again, Laura Paskus is our correspondent for this important, important conversation, especially if you're a parent, want to make sure you take a time to listen to this and perhaps grab your child and have them listen to it as well. The reason I say that is, is that uh, a big theme in this conversation is going to be how our, our drugs on the street are more potent than ever before. And there's a really poignant moment in here when Laura talks to Sam about how you don't really have a chance to make a mistake, a one-time mistake with these drugs anymore because of the potency, the addictiveness. All it takes is one chance and you're in and uh, it will more times than not end only with your death. And so these are serious, serious issues. And Sam does a, such a great job of uh, telling the story 
and helping you to understand the complexities of that. And again, in the show on air on New Mexico PBS this week, only had time for a snippet of it. We're going to bring it to you here in its entirety because it is just that important. So if you can, go out and find the book yourself. Again, it's called The Least of Us. also encourage you to find Dreamland from a couple years ago. Give them a read, but here you'll get a better idea of why these are such important books. Thanks for coming back on the show, Sam. It's great to be here, Laura. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So I'd like to start by asking you to read a paragraph at the beginning of your book. I felt like I knew this was going to be a tough book to read, and I feel like this particular paragraph on page nine gave me the hope that I could I could get through this book, and I think it'll help our audience as well. Sure. Okay. Happy to. Um, I came to see that addicts gripped by drug-induced self-centeredness and isolation are just extreme examples of each of us in our time. Once freed, they discover what we all need. They discover grace, patience with others, a feeling of being part of something bigger than themselves, optimism and gratitude, a recognition of themselves in others. If we're lucky, we'll come out on the other side of all that besets us as Americans, as I write, with the insight recovering, that recovering addicts receive, and with wisdom enough to glimpse ourselves in them. If so, we'll be better for it. Thank you, Sam. So I feel like in The Least of Us, there's kind of four classes of drugs that you're writing about. Um, heroin, these pharmaceutical opioids, fentanyl, and this new meth, P2P. Can right. you kind of give us like the 101 on what these four? Yes. And I think that's very important because what we are seeing now, what we have been in the middle of for the last several years, is the transition of the trafficking world in Mexico away from the standard drugs that, that they've often been associated with, heroin, poppies, growing poppies, and so on, and marijuana, and towards uh, synthetic drugs uh, in its, in predominantly. And the synthetic drugs have never seen a plant. They're just chemically made uh, in labs. And they, they, this has happened not because of any, necessarily any demand in the United States for this stuff. This happens entirely because it benefits traffickers. They no longer need land or rainfall or sunlight. Uh, they no longer lead a large farming, harvesting crew. Um, they, they, they no longer need seasons. They can just, if all they really need now is uh, ports, shipping ports, because through shipping ports, they get all the, the chemicals from the world markets, primarily China, but also other countries as well, not, not exclusive to any one country, um, that they would need to produce these, these drugs if they can control those ports. And in Mexico, given their enormous power and their ability and their guns that they get, frankly, from us, um, they, they are able to, con to, to control that. And so those, those chemicals have been coming in unrelenting container loads for, for many years. And, and this has allowed them to transition and more and more people get into the production of these drugs. And so what we have now is not only do we have this shift away from plant-based drugs, but the supplies are just staggering, you know, just breathtaking amounts so much so that they have been able to really, in essence, cover the entire United States with these drugs, which is an unprecedented achievement in, in the underworld. We've never had one source cover the entire uh, uh, country 
with one, one drug, let alone uh, two. And yet that's kind of what we're finding here. And so what I feel like lots of people in our audience, you know, have heard about um, opioids <coughs> and know what heroin is. But what is fentanyl and what is Fentanyl the is a synthetic opioid. It hits the same receptors in our brains. It's a marvelous drug used medically in surgery. It has revolutionized surgery, and I bet many of your listeners have been given fentanyl in the surgical setting. That's one setting. When it's in the hands of the underworld, it becomes an extraordinarily dangerous drug because it's so much more potent than morphine and heroin and all these other opioids that we're used to hearing more about. Um, and so, it, 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 but, but because it's made in so such staggering quantities um, and because you don't need very much you know it's it's so potent that a small amount will make you a lot of money you are finding now that the dealing world particularly dealers closer to the street have been using it to sprinkle into for lack of a better term you know mix into um, uh, other drugs so you find it now frequently in cocaine uh, you find it in methamphetamine, there are rare occasions, although I think it does happen when you find it in marijuana. Um, and so it's, it's transformed, it, it, they say on the street, you know, fentanyl changes everything. Yes, it's totally transformed uh, drug use, who gets wealthy, it's be made, because it's so widespread, almost anybody can be selling what used to be considered, you know, kingpin type quantities of this stuff. And, and, and that um, means that a lot of, that, that just adds to the distribution. More and more people distributing it means it gets to more and more places. Mm -hmm. So you write in your book, your latest book, the days of recreational drug use are over in America. What do you mean by that? that mean, what I mean by that is just what I was referring to, that you cannot take, um, you know, it used to be, uh, I grew up in a time when it was commonplace for people at parties you know, a line of cocaine, oh sure, that's no problem. You know, a pill, okay, fine, no problem. Well, those days I don't believe are over, I, I don't believe exists anymore. That w you cannot trust any drug out there right now that you did not buy from a pharmacy in a pharmaceutical bottle, that's it. You know, you can't, even your best friend giving you a pill it has to be, you have to be, it has to, you have to suspect it. The other part of this issue, because it's so made in such qu quantities, the Mexican trafficking world has taken to packaging fentanyl now in the form of counterfeit, phony um, uh, brand name pills like, that look like Percocet or Xanax or oxycodone generic 30 milligram blue uh, pills are very, very common. That's really the pill that started it all. They figure out, hey, we could just press these, put fentanyl into them. All those pills contain is fentanyl. And many of them now are being reported to contain significant amounts of, of fentanyl that, that would kill a naive, a person who has never used before, um, uh, a user who has never done it before. Um, and that's what you're finding. It, fentanyl, because it's so common, because it's been now sprinkled, mixed into uh, on, on other drugs, which we've also never seen in our country's history, the death toll is what we've seen it is, which is 100,000 uh, deaths just reported the last couple of weeks um, in a 12-month period. I think we're gonna see those 12-month periods continually be at or near uh, 100,000 uh, deaths for those for, for a while now. 
Yeah, this mixing that you mentioned, like around Thanksgiving, I saw social media posts like, hey, if you're doing some cocaine this over this holiday, like there's word out is there's fentanyl and cocaine. Yeah. That's an every every right drug now. use now is a game of Russian Russian roulette, mm -hmm. whether you know the person. That person may be, a, may be a good friend, maybe a person you bought from before. That person doesn't know what's in the drug that he or she is selling you. They guaranteed you do not. And so there's, there's um, no way of knowing anymore. And the problem is not knowing is a deadly mistake. You know, it's a, again, it's a game of Russian roulette with every single drug out there on the street today, I think. You really, you know, kind of get at this in your book in multiple places that, that hit me as a parent that kids today don't get to make a mistake with drugs. No. There aren't second chances. Can there you talk none. about that's, that? Yes, it's a very unforgiving world. And that's because drugs now are very cheap, very prevalent. They're everywhere. As I say, they cover the entire country. And, um, and extraordinarily potent in ways that we never knew uh, the drugs before, even when the Colombians were moving huge amounts of cocaine into the United States in the 80s, the, dr the, drug, the cocaine was very expensive. It was usually very cut and diluted. And we've never had a period like we have today on the streets where the drugs are so deadly, so prevalent, and so cheap. And again, we've had a long history of alarmist, sensationalized reporting on drugs um, going back to the 30s. And um, I'm not wanting to be part of that history, that tradition, but this is different. This is very, uh, very different. What has happened, I think it's fascinating, all the mythology that might have been created in the 30s through the 50s into the 70s and whatever about the drugs uh, on the street, that you know, one hit will kill you and that would turn you into a raving maniac, all those myths are now reality. And the, the, the data is very, very clear. This is not mythology. This is not sensationalism. This is fact. And, and, it's, and uh, the, the, the fentanyl will kill you. The methamphetamine will drive you. Um, well, accompanied by major um, uh, symptoms of schizophrenia. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what is this new meth, this P2P, and, and what are some of, like, what are people seeing? Well, the meth... The way the Mexican trafficking world made meth changed a few years back. It changed really in, because in 2008, the Mexican government put uh, regulations, very severe regulations, on the, the other drug, the, the other chemical that they were using to make methamphetamine, a, a, a chemical known as uh, ephedrine, which is a decongestant. You find it in Sudafed pills, and they were using it. They were extracting the Sudafed from the, the, the ephedrine from the pills, and that's why you have to got them all locked up in the at Costco or, or Walgreens or what have you. So the Mexican government does that. The Mexican trafficking world pivots to an, another method that is not really an optimal method for making methamphetamine. It's smelly, a lot of chemicals. It has one benefit, one benefit over the other way, and that is that you can make it with a variety of ways getting to the precursor that is necessary in this method, which is a chemical called phenol 2 propanone, which is commonly known by everybody as P2P. That's just know what is P2P. It's a chemical that you need to make this kind of a, you can make P2P many, many different ways with all kinds of combinations of very commonly used industrial chemicals. They're legal, they're commonly used in all kinds of industries, and they're highly toxic. 
So this allows them the supply expansion that we have seen since about 2009 or 10, really beginning in about 2013, 14 is when you see those supplies coming. And it marches across the country, hitting our area, New Mexico, all the West, right about 2013, 14, Midwest in about 2017, and into New England about 2019. Problem is that this, as this marches across the country, the evidence shows that it has been accompanied by, at the same time, very rapid onset, powerful, intense symptoms of schizophrenia. This would be paranoia, very intense paranoia. Everybody's out to get you. All of a sudden, everybody's a threat. Any black car that passes by must be the FBI, you know, kind of thing. You're out of your mind with paranoia. And then also hallucinations, very vivid hallucinations of things coming up, monsters in the basement, and it's just a terrifying uh, I think delusions and at the same time you become really incapable you're up all the time you're 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 fussing around you're screaming at demons you can't live with people so people begin to not only kind of fall apart in their daily life but be unable to be around other folks mm -hmm. so they lose their housing so very quickly people are homeless problem is that the last place you want to be when you're in that mental state is an animal is a human a, a, a homeless shelter right it's a it, 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 everybody's a threat Right, in a homeless shelter. And so this is, you also have begun to see the rise of the tent encampments. And we see this in areas with extraordinarily high cost of housing, in areas where there is no housing pressure, cost uh, pressure at all. In fact, they're rust belt areas, rural areas where the prices of housing have remained the same for, for years. It doesn't matter, it's the same problem. And so the tent encampments, the homelessness, the rise in mental illness that we have seen advance across the country in the last eight years, nine years, I argue very convinced now that th this is connected to the meth that's been produced in such enormous quantities by the Mexican trafficking world since about 2012, 13, 14. Yeah, you write about this, the homelessness, which you, um, you write about how it's different from the shredded safety net homelessness that there we are, see. Yeah, exactly. There are many kinds of homelessness. We speak about homelessness in one way. The truth is there are many stories. They're very complex. They're very complicated. And I don't want to give short shrift to the complexity of the stories of the people who are out there because you frequently, as a journalist, you begin to see things that, that, that all of a sudden kind of you know, upset whatever narrative you thought you, you worked. However, um, and so there, yeah, there are people who lose their housing because of what is a shredded safety net. They, they have a surgery, they lose their job, they can't afford a home and surgery, so they have to choose. There's the, um, in California really, there's a phenomenon of the uh, sexual, uh, sex registrant homeless. People who can't find housing because they, there's really very few places where they're legally allowed to live. That's another, you get out of prison, your family had disowned you, what do you do? You're, that's another form of home. Everybody has their story. However, it's very difficult, I think, to spend much time uh, uh, in homeless encampments talking to people who are working with those folks as well. So you, you get the both sides, drug counselors, homeless outreach uh, uh, visitors, people who go into the camps to see if they can find help, help people get out of homelessness. The more you talk to folks like that, the more you understand the powerful uh, force that this methamphetamine, made the way it is with the precursor that it's made with, um, has is is uh, creating in our in our in our in our country with regard to these these very damaging symptoms symptoms and also frankly very difficult then to treat. 
It's not just that it may cause homelessness. Once you are homeless, it's so prevalent, you begin to use it because it's so prevalent and cheap, and that makes getting out of homelessness extraordinarily difficult. It's very difficult. And, and the folks who do recover report that, this, that, that they continue to believe they are affected for years after, two years, three years. I've talked to people who, 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 who clearly are, are, know they are not the same person as they were before they used this stuff. And so, so this is, but it's, the other thing is that no one really seems keen to talk about this. All across the country, you know, the narrative is high housing costs. Well, you know, Clarksburg, West Virginia, which I read about in my book, is a Rust Belt town with no high housing costs. And they have the same th problem, albeit in a smaller way, as, as Los Angeles does. The one thing that I think that I don't understand, because I'm like probably thinking about it in terms of like some sort of capitalist perspective, but what's the point of having, what's the point of selling a drug that's super, super cheap and is maybe gonna kill a lot yeah. of your customers? There's several reasons why that happens. Um, for, on the Mexican side, that they are separated by many layers from the people who are using. They don't care, they just know they're selling a commodity. If I make, if I have five, six labs going, I can make a couple hundred kilos a month of this stuff, sell it, what else do I care about? I don't really care where it ends up, who uses it, how, what damage it does, why should I? It's a commodity, I'm a commodity trader, just like sow bellies and all the rest. I think that's the rationale that people get into. Mm -hmm. At the dealer level, it's, a whole, it's another thing though. Fentanyl in particular has created this, this thing. Why would you mix a drug that you know or, or have a high suspicion will harm somebody, kill them, um, wouldn't that be reducing your customer base? Well, yes and no. Uh, if you mix it into cocaine, cocaine buyers are usually occasional buyers. Every couple of days, every weekend, whatever, you slip fentanyl into that cocaine and pretty soon that person's an opioid addict. An opioid addict has to buy that drug every single day, sometimes twice, three times a day, depends. And, and so all of a sudden you've got a widened customer base. All of a sudden people are buying from you far more often than they used to when it was just cocaine. I think methamphetamine, you've seen that as well, people doing it in there. The other issue I think is, is very important to understand is that in the, in the fully addicted uh, opioid world, and that's what we have now with fentanyl, people who have survived fentanyl are now addicted to it and they are, their tolerance is now growing. So they've lived through it somehow and now they're, so, so they are now behaving like heroin addicts used to because this is the same kind of drug. And when someone dies in that world of an overdose, that is not necessarily a warning. That could very well be an advertisement to many people out there. Let's go get that because that's the powerful drug. I'm not gonna die, that guy died, but I'm not gonna, but let's go get that dope because that's really uh, powerful stuff. So putting it into, you hear cases, I've heard of a couple at least, where, 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 where dealers will advertise the fact that their dope puts somebody on his butt, as they say, right? And, and all of this is why you see this stuff being now mixed, which again has never happened before. Now, dealers have always sold whatever it is they've had, just very rudimentary mixes, you know, like stirring in some lact lactose or whatever in the cocaine or whatever. This is a very different thing we're talking about. You never see one drug um, 
kind of mixed with another, with an attitude towards market expansion. That's really the idea. Again, this is all about supply. This is all about what traffickers need, the benefits, the profit, the, the reduced risk to, to traffickers and dealers. Doesn't have much to do at all with what customers may want or demand. So one of the things that I really like about this book and Dreamland, your book that focuses on heroin and the, the sort of opiates is <clears throat> while political conversations around drugs have become a little bit more nuanced, you're coming at this from a journalistic perspective, which means it's complicated, it's complex, there aren't any easy answers. Correct. And I really appreciate you write about these overlapping factors when it comes to Americans and addiction. It's not just these changes in the illegal drug trade um, or the marketing of addictive painkillers by these companies. Um, it's also, you write, you know, related to sugar and fast food and right. U.S. gun manufacturers and social media. And you write... Dopamine convinces us that happiness lies around the corner just a little bit more, and this prevents us from enjoying serotonin's contentment with what we already possess. There's all of these things right. happening. Are our brains equipped for this world that we I don't we've believe created? they are. They, they evolved for another world. They evolved for a world of scarcity. Scarcity in calories, scarcity in fat, scarcity in sugar, um, all that because they evolved over millions of years in which we were essentially, as one author, a couple of authors have said, and I quote in the book, saying they were kind of, our brand, our, those people were on a kind of a permanent camping trip. Those millions of years when we developed that, we developed brains that were uh, uniquely designed to keep us alive. How do they do that? By, prize, by giving us reward when we ate, when we had sex. Be give, giving us a big reward when we found other people to commune with. That's why... Um, music is so important. Storytelling is so important. You know, sports and all these things are so important to us because, because they bring us together. We know that that's not a luxury, that's a necessity, and it's an essential part of our survival as, as a species. What's more, our brains were, were uh, uh, created, or, or evolved, I should say, to um, warn us of threats, imminent threats, leave, run, whatever, you know. And that's how we survive. Those things, and those drugs today, the, 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 the drugs of, of, of abuse that I'm talking about, do amazing things to mute all of that and revert it and turn it into something that behave obedient to the dope. But I would say on a lower, on a lower level, a lot of things that we have made um, uh, legal, uh, sugar, Chicken nuggets, 60% fat and, sh and salt in a, chicken, a ch chicken nugget. I mean, it just goes straight to your brain. Pornography, video games, a big one, gambling, um, shopping, uh, and of course, social media, as, as you say, do similar things in lesser with lesser intensity uh, to our brain. And, and so I wanted to, to study that. I want, so one of the things that I really, really enjoyed in writing uh, The Least of Us was talking with these magnificent neuroscientists we have out there. Our neuroscientists have, are, are finding things about the brain today that is just stagger, just awesome in its, in its, in its beauty sometimes. And uh, what we know about the brain, what we can ask about the, what does your brain look like on storytelling? 
is one, just an example. It's a fascinating thing. But I wanted to, because I, I wanted to learn about that because I thought this was the, the age when this is possible. Now, but also I wanted to understand this continuum. I believe, certainly now after doing this, that there's this continuum. Starts with a software uh, engineer for Facebook, uh, soda manufacturers, fast food, and their pornographic up-close photos that look like, you know, glistening with fat of these burgers and all that, pornography, video games, and finally at the end, you get to the Sinaloa drug cartel. They're all selling stuff that have been tweaked and continue to be tweaked to hit our brains and make us want immediate gratification and buying money because our brains have not, and to answer your question, our brains have not evolved along with our culture of mass marketing, pop, pop culture, mass consumption, and, 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 and the, the very, the, the, the things that have also, evolved, products that have also evolved in this way are drugs of abuse that are far, far more important. Marijuana is a weed. 3% THC when grown naturally, now it's got 30, 40% THC and you can distill that to vapes that have 90, you know. So you're seeing all of this is a big continuum, right? And you've got all of these products that have been tweaked and changed and evolved and hybridized and so on and on and on and on to be made massively uh, impactful uh, on our brains that are not prepared for it. So I'd like to touch on COVID a little bit and the rise of overdose deaths, which we've all been hearing about. And it's complex, you write, but you add that you suspect that 2021 is part of a long unplanned experiment in decriminalization of one of the most devastating street drugs we've ever known. And that those addicted to them are remaining on the streets. Can you talk about this a little? Well, I think this is a big problem that, that our thinking on what to do about drug addiction and the balance between law enforcement and and treatment and prevention and all that um, has been formed in another era of drugs. The drugs have changed, our thinking hasn't. So the idea is that uh, we should decriminalize these small uh, quantities of drugs and small uh, low-level felonies and whatever that have to do with drugs and that kind of thing. And I think in another era that might have worked, but the, to the extent that that leads people to be on the street longer and not be in jail, that is, a devast that is not compassion. That is the opposite. Those people will die. There's no such thing as a long-term street fentanyl user. They all die. Nobody. Die. That's what's fueling our amazing uh, numbers every, every month and every, every year now. Um, and um, the idea of no bail, you know? Well, that's a, that's a, it's a very just thing when applied to certain cases. I believe that too. I've been a crime reporter a long time. However, when you arrest somebody for a drug case, a minor drug case that is really a symptom of a big, very deep drug problem, particularly considering all the drugs on the street, you give that person, you take that person to jail, that person gets kicked right back out because there's no bail applied, and, and that person is right back in that same world that, that, that is devastating and life-threatening at every moment, really. And so to me, this, this, these drugs are calling on us to question a whole lot. It calling on us to question, for example, um, how we run jail. I think right now we need to understand that jail has been an, an anchor around our neck, the way it's traditionally been run for decades. It is a horrible, horrible problem. You go in criminally minded, mentally ill or addicted, you come out worse, right? It uh, really creates problems for us rather than solutions. But in some parts of the country, they're rethinking that. I think it's fascinating because rarely on social media or cable TV news do you find people changing their minds. 
But now, in these areas, you're finding, that's why I like writing about people changing their minds. So in the book, the least of us, they've got three chapters on a very red county changing the way they do jail because they realize it's not working. And so people use jail. There's pods where you enter, you sign up. You, it, it's all about recovery. You're making your bed at 8 in the morning. You're no TV. You're not watching Judge Judy playing poker. You are, you are working on your recovery. It's not a panacea. There is no panacea here, but it is a way of saying um, we're rethinking how all these things that we have to do and taking small steps, all of which together may amount to a really significant dent in this problem, not a 100% solution. But we're doing it because the drugs on the street, have, we do not have the luxury of some of the ideas that were formed in another era and may have worked very well in those eras. But nowadays, with fentanyl and meth on the street, I just don't see decriminalization is a, is a recipe for, for, for people dying. And I would say finally this to that, that there has been a, there is a very long history, and some of your listeners will attest to this, I believe. There's a very long history of people going to jail and, do, and coming out and doing better, too. Okay? People, I've, I've just, I've run into too many folks who came to me, who've come to me, or I've ta met in, in the course of my work over the last ten, almost 10 years now on these topics, and they've said, the best thing that ever happened to me was the day I got arrested. I could not do for myself what that officer did for me. And I had in Dreamland a guy from here, from, uh, from New Mexico, tell me, um, I want you to put in there, I want to thank the DEA agent who arrested me because I, otherwise I would have died. And this man is doing very well now and, and a big member of AA and all that kind of stuff. And he's well on his way. I spoke to him. He's highly, you know, he's sober. He's doing really, really well. All that happens with his arrest. So the idea, we have this kind of idea that all arrests must be bad. That's not true. Getting people off the street, that is a compassionate act. Leaving them on the street is the opposite of that, in my opinion. So looking into the future as more states like New Mexico looks at decriminalizing something just like recreational marijuana, with your journalist's hat on, what are some of the unintended consequences you think? Um, <laughs> the, I could go on quite a long time about the, uh, the childish way, it seems to me, the evidence shows that we have um, uh, legalized marijuana. We have not legalized it with an attitude towards, okay, um, if, it's a, if it's a food, if it's a consumable item, then we need to inspect it like any other food stuff gets inspected and make sure that the, there's, you know, that's being produced in a, in a responsible way. Um, if it's a medicine, well, I know how other medicines are, are, are made. That, that's how marijuana needs to be addressed. I think we have been captured by what I think is really uh, the next big in industrial combine, which is, you know, big pharma, big oil, big pot. Um, to me, it makes, it makes very little sense in a time of climate change to allow marijuana, which grows perfectly well under the sun, to be grown indoors. That is, the carbon footprint is catastrophic, disastrous, you know. Why is that, why is that happening? Because it, it benefits producers like suppliers. Um, um, and, 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 and I think the, the big lesson that we should have learned from the opioid epidemic is this. Be careful of what very potent legal drug you make widely available with outlandish claims of its risk-free nature. And that is what really was behind the opioid epidemic. Making those claims for, for very powerful 
prescription pain pills. Therefore, yeah, anybody could do it. Well, same thing with, with, with marijuana. I think it would be wise to, to start by taking it down a notch, reducing the amount of, 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 um, of uh, uh, the potency. Um, also understanding that just because you, we had this idea that we're not going to arrest people from, for marijuana sales anymore, the problem is if you're a legal dispensary paying taxes, you can't compete with someone who's selling in the, in the underworld who pays no taxes, has no lights, has no expenses, all the expenses that you have, re rent and all that kind of thing, doesn't have any of that. And, and so we need to make uh, an effort, a very serious effort, to arrest those people. Those people will go to jail for selling marijuana. They're just not selling it legally, so that it benefits the dispensaries. You know, I don't. I'm. I'm I do believe in, do, in legalizing marijuana. I don't believe legalizing it the way we have uh, is is wise, is is mature, is adult. Uh, and and then of course also. Um, the tax money that, you know, now dispensaries are saying you have to reduce our taxes because we can't compete with these folks on the, uh, in the underworld. Well, you know, I thought that was what the whole point of legalizing marijuana was, to, to get increased taxes. Right. So lastly, in your book, in Dreamland and in The Least of Us, you tell the individuals, like, these are hard books to read, but they're, they're fast-paced, they're compelling, and you also have people and communities in your books who offer some hope, who yes. show like, you know, this person is in recovery, this community came together in these really interesting ways. Kind of broadly speaking, what do you, what, what do you offer maybe parents or communities who are well, I think Well, I think that we have within us, our brains are evolved this way, as I was talking about earlier, the most potent force to combat this, we just have forgotten it and gotten away from it. We would not have survived as a species without this very intense need to be in community, right? And the person, the caveman that went off wandering alone by himself, he got eaten. We, we evolved as people who wanted, who needed each other. And we saw this during the pandemic too. It's just that in this country, the last 40 years, we kind of have shredded all these ways that would bring us together, you know? Community banks got gobbled up. We turned youth sports, which is a beautiful way of coming together, into kind of club things that, that nobody goes to watch except the parents and the kid is turned into a professional by 13 or 15 years old, traveling 150 miles every weekend, you know, that kind of thing. Um, to me, and there's a many, many other ways we could talk about how we have shredded community in this country, leaving ourselves very, very def defenseless, I, I argue, in, against these first pain pills and heroin, now this stuff that's on the street today is devastating. And so what I was trying to do with the stories that I told, and this really became, I, I wrote very clearly and bluntly and, and with evidence, I believe, about the drug story, and it's a very sinister story that's out there, but the heart and soul of The Least of Us, in my opinion, the reason I called it The Least of Us, was because I had this feeling I wanted this to be a book about Americans as we have been and could be again, writing stories about people who working, are working in small ways, right? The idea that we have this magical big solution to all our problems, that's dope talking, that's heroin talking to my way. This is a real community change comes in small steps and it comes daily work, not worrying if you're saving the world in some noble, virtuous, fashion, not, wor not worrying if it's not happening tomorrow, it's it will happen, and that is where real change happens. I, I, 
And that uh, is by people who I think who have understood the essential idea, which is um, behind these, the, the lessons behind it, which is um, we're better together, right? we're stronger in community, we're as weak as the most vulnerable, we're as weak as, as the least of us, right? And that's, it comes from Book of Matthew in, uh, in the Bible. I'm not a Christian, but I was reading the Bible when I was writing this book, and that, that hit me as, as, as very appropriate to our, to our times, the idea that people need... So, so, for example, there's a story of a guy named Bird uh, in Muncie, Indiana, grows up in a neighborhood surrounded by these enormous transition, transmission factories. As they decline really severely, they're about to close. The city council decides we have to close the community centers, the places where people have gone to have fun together. Uh, because, and the, the ones right across from Bird's house, he used to work there. They eventually close it as the factories close, and, accept, and they think, okay, we're done. We're not, you know, it's not going to be open anymore, except for the Bird keeps the key. Right? And he goes over and he unlocks it, right? When the kids need to play basketball, when the older folks need to play cards, he, he mows the lawn, he fixes the, the, the toilet. And he becomes a community center in, unto himself. And he helps this community, his neighborhood in South Muncie, weather the, the enormous stress from economic dislocation, but also from the opioids that begin to, to enter. So it's stories like this. It's not necessarily helping people with addiction. It's helping build cohesive uh, neighborhoods that are strong enough to fight off problems that come from ab abroad. And to me, that is what we need to get back to. We have it within us. Our brains evolve that way. We want it. Pandemic showed us that. We just have forgotten that we have that within us. And it's, it's uh, something I wanted to help maybe remind people that they had. Yeah, well, thank you. Everyone should read this book. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Laura. Very kind of you. Thanks. Sam, thanks for sticking around for a couple minutes to talk about oh, writing. My, my pleasure, Laura, anytime. Awesome. So your transition from journalist to book author, how, how did that happen? It happened because I realized that the stories I was working on for the LA Times actually merited much larger treatment. The story was nationwide. This happened with my book Dreamland, uh, my first book. And, and I began to realize this is much bigger than you could really tell in a story. I would say, though, that the transition is not that stark. You know, I apply all the, all the, 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 the procedures and the rules and the, um, the practices that I learned being a crime reporter most of my life to this. And it's just doing more of it, doing it more, a little bit more intensely, keeping track of a variety of, of stories at once, when before it was just usually one story I was telling at the time. But, but it's, it's, it wasn't that hard, I have to say. I love reading books by journalists because there's this combination of complexity, storytelling, and like, you're bringing me along. Right, That's the whole, that was the whole idea behind Dreamland. That's why the chapters are very short. You know, when I started, I put all the books on my table that I had dealing with heroin. Some of them I got from libraries on my own. And when I say, these are books, you know, I knew a lot, I knew something about them. None of them had sold, none of them were read. 10,000 or 15,000 copies max, you know. And so what do they all have in common? Well, long chapters. It's kind of a, like a, 
a, a medicine, take your medicine kind of book, you know? And, and then I asked myself, why do I love to watch certain movies like Heat? I've watched that many times. Or The Wire, another unbelievable, really one of the, the, best, the best TV show ever, I think. Um, why? Well, because the stories are gripping, the characters are fantastic, and you, you leave people hanging. You, don't, you want to binge. That's when I, I love binging on that. So I don't think that's a bad thing at all. So I began to think, well, this is what the book needs to be. It needs to be a, a story that you can binge, right? That you can, that I'm, or at least I'm going to employ, employ the services like Charles Dickens and, and other people that leave people hanging. So you're always wanting to know what happens next. And the chapters also are like TV scenes, you know, or a TV episode, three, four pages. That's, that's the max because I want people to be moved, moved, moved along. And, and that was really the, the process. And, and so, and it's also keeping the writing clean really going after unneedless words, going after needless uh, words. It's a, the, the essential uh, act in writing is doing that. Omitting, omit needless words, that's what uh, Strunk and White uh, said in their classic uh, a book on, on writing, uh, and what I totally believe is, is necessary. And when you do that, omit needless paragraphs, omit needless quotes, et cetera, et cetera, all that stuff, you get to a streamlined thing that is powerful and brings people along and, and achieves what did not happen with those other books, that as well as they may written as they may have been, I'm not passing judgment, I'm just saying, I didn't want my book to be like that. And, and so Dreamland was like that. The least of us is also with that in mind, although the chapters aren't quite as short, they're still, this, the attitude is, I had was always to bring people along quickly, but also based on uh, very, I believe, uh, quite rigorous uh, research too. It's not like just shooting your mouth off, this is what this person said. This is what this study showed. You know, this is what this neuroscientist experiment displayed. That kind of thing. You bring people along and then weave them, find the connections. How do they all connect? You know, to me, you need to make a coherent whole. We are we are bombarded with incoherence. This story, what does it matter? What this story over here? There's thousands of these, sometimes th hundreds of these a day. We don't know what they mean or how they all fit together. And if you don't do that thing, all of a sudden your reaction is just to shut things down. I don't want to hear it anymore. I just want to watch Seinfeld reruns, you know. And so that was also my, my intention. Let's find ways to explain to the world. Explain sometimes that my audience was parents who'd lost kids or loved ones of any kind, spouses, sisters, and brothers, what have you, you know. Um, what happened in your life? How did that happen? Well, here's my best shot at, at explaining what, what I think happened. Yeah. So in Dreamland and in The Least of Us, there are these like momentary tangents um, that catch my attention. Like in Dreamland, like the Russian evangelicals, yes. where I'm like, that's a book. Or in The sure. Least of Us, the, the father um, who's bringing thermoplastic videotape and chemicals from Akron to China in the 70s. Right. Like, how do you... Um, how do you not go down every road? Well, it's very hard. And the, the, the truth is, I think most journalists will tell you, um, certainly I can tell you, that, um, that it's reducing. Because all these facts are your babies. You're connected to them. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, my God. I'm such a great journalist for finding that out. Oh, my God. How dare I cut it? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's, they're great. it's great stuff. I left lots on the cutting room floor, you can say. Uh, that I think should be in there, but you also always have to keep in mind how people read, 
what people want to read, how much of it they want to read, and keeping the sh chapters short. And so, you know, with, with all of my books, I've kind of taken an attack, okay, for each chapter, I'm going to cut, I, I have a rough draft, for each chapter, I'm going to cut 10%. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but over a period, then you get to 10% reduced. And then after a while, you go, okay, now it's another 10%, you know? And that's when you get to really, I think, solid reading at that point. It just propels you along. You can't stop, you know? Then when you get it down to that level, when the author has taken so much care to say, I know how you read, I know what you need to read, I know what you need to know, and we're going to strip out the rest, and so it makes it much more uh, quick. And so I would say that my re reaction I've been receiving from the book, from emails, on Facebook, or what have you, is just that. You know, I read it in three days, I'm re I've read it now for the it's a second time, um, this is uh, a very fast pace, it's, it's, it, it, it's a dour topic, but it doesn't feel that way, these kinds of things, and that is where I, I live, you know, that's uh, my narcotic, really, oh, well, Mike, tell me that again, please, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of the way it is. Yeah, so, and things change so fast on your beat. I'm curious yes. how you, with writing a book, how you are timely and yet able to respond to But see, changes. this is the point. It's very difficult, yeah. um, and um, you always have to, I was adding stuff to The Least of Us within like a month of turning it in and then adding it after that I got the copy edits back because I have to give myself pep talks when I'm writing this stuff because nothing changes faster in our economy than the underworld. It's rapid. It is so rapid. So I have to say, I can't worry about that. I'm just going to write it, but I do have to write it as quick. So I would say that th there's significant uh, part in this book that talks about the transformation of uh, counterfeit pain pills and how these are now, in Mexico, transforming them into, you know, and that these are now being sold on Snapchat and Instagram and all the rest, right? Well, um, that is a relatively new thing. That's within the last year or two. And, and, and so I wanted to make sure that that was part of the book. So I added far more than the copy editor would have liked, actually. Uh, I think I added like, like thousand, couple thousand words on the, on the topic, maybe something like that that I thought just had to be in there because it was such a big deal. It had not been a big deal when I was starting the book. And actually, after about a year into it, it still was not a big deal. It was not the, the, the thing. And now it's clearly, in the last year and a half, it's become the thing on the street to be selling the stuff and also selling it on, on social media. So, I need, so I'm always very aware of that, that I have to be rapid fire involved in this stuff. And I can't avoid it, you know. Yeah. So can you talk about what's next, what your, your current or next project is? <laughs> oh, man. I want to take a nap. Okay, that's what I want to do. Um, you know, there are many projects that I, I love, um, I'd love to do. One is a, a, a young adult version of a story that I heard in Mexico about how they, this is completely off the topic now. Uh, a, 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 a story is one of my beautiful little babies that I've been working on for a long time and printed in a, a couple of versions about the way they chose the first Chinese Mexican beauty queen in, in Mexico in the, in the city of Mazatlan during Carnival. And uh, she was chosen uh, because they made a, a way of uh, that the, the queen would become the person or whose family um, collected, literally true, the most Pepsi bottle caps, right? 
and um, and it's a story also of a Chinese community that had been highly persecuted 30 years before during the depression and all that and a lot of forced, forced deport deportations running people out and that kind of thing so the Chinese community that was left it's very very quiet nobody ever participated in public things and this was the first kind of coming out of the Chinese the woman's name was Isela Wong and she has this gorgeous story she's died a number of years ago but I interviewed her before she died and she has this gorgeous story about you know getting money from the different Chinatowns and coming back and holding like wrestling matches and people would pay in terms with Pepsi bottle caps all this kind of stuff just gorgeous gorgeous detail beautiful story so I want to write a, a, a young adult mainly for girls um, story about Isela Wong the first Chinese Mexican beauty queen I also have a book that I'd like to think I'd like to do about um, another weird topic, but I love it um, about tubas, um, the tuba and, and uh, the civil rights movement. And tub tubas have always been at the back of the band, hidden, right? But now you're seeing tubas step to the fore and be virtuoso soloists and this kind of thing. So that's another story. And then there's the story of. Um, my first book was published by the University of New Mexico Press here in Albuquerque. Wonderful press, wonderful people. So big shout out to the University of New Mexico uh, uh, Press. F folks I worked with back then were magnificent. My first book had on its cover a guy by the name of Chalino Sanchez. Chalino Sanchez was a kind of the godfather of the narco corrido, the, ba the narco ballad murdered in Culiacan, Sinaloa, but had lived his life here in, well, in, in Los Angeles. And um, that's a, a you know a, a, a ten thousand word story. I wanted to write a, I want to write a full length biography of Chalino Sanchez because his life intersects with all these. Uh, his life story is fascinating, but it also intersects with the rise of illegal illegal immigration, the rise of drug trafficking, and the rise of enormous Mexican diaspora um, uh, in 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 Los Angeles that I want to write about as well. I know a lot about as well. So. Those are some of the ideas, but who knows, man? I mean, there's so many, I'm interested in everything. There's nothing that doesn't interest me. Tubas, you know, Chinese, Mexican beauty queens, drug traffickers, it's all, it's all just magnificent stuff. It's, a, it's frankly, you're never gonna be rich, you know, but this kind of way of living is, is just so uh, fulfilling. I'm never bored. I'm always waking up going, damn, that's a great story, man. You know? Well, I'm glad. I love your work going way back to Two Tales from Another Mexico. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you, Laura. I, I really appreciate it. I can't wait to read what comes next. So yeah. thanks, Sam. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>All right, that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I want to take a minute to thank our entire team on the editorial side of things. You heard from Gene Grant, our host, Laura Paskis, our correspondent and environmental reporter here at New Mexico PBS. On the production side, we have uh, production manager, Anthony Lostetter, and our production team is Kevin Maestas, Benjamin Yaza, Robert McDermott and Aaron Senna. Also our student employees from UNM. We love having them here. Ludella Awad and Bennett Riley. Also want to shout out Kathy Wimmer on the editorial side of things. She helps us out a lot with the line and just keeping us all in line. 
Thanks to Kathy for everything. We'll be back again on Monday with a lot of great content, including the latest edition of Our Land, our environmental series, where we find out all about the furry critters that we share our urban uh, cities and uh, towns with and why they're so important to everything that makes our towns and cities so great. We'll also be talking about a plan proposal from the governor to try to attain, retain and attract more teachers. All that much, much more coming up next time. Until then, thanks for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy. <laughs>